0: Hi, my name is Claire, and I'm the mother of three teenagers with FASD.
1: I'm Jessica, a PhD researcher specialising in educational interventions for children with FASD.
0: And together, we are the hosts of Spotlight on FASD, the UK's first podcast dedicated to shining a spotlight. That um, the journey still probably going to be difficult, but I'm not. I'm not going to be fighting against. It trying to prove it's even a real thing that my children are living with um and I think from the point of view of of the being on a, a member of the nice panel so it was something that I um I had always always thought about my journey with my kids you know this is this is what I, I would reach certainly in education I would reach a point and think well I need to be able to do that and normal can't do that why can't we do that well because of this and I kind of backtracked me way all the way to like well where do we need to where does things need to change in order to set the wheels in motion so that further down the line children and young people can access the things that that I've needed my kids to access um and so when the opportunity came up that that there was a panel and you had to apply for it and it was like a, it was a proper job interview that so you had to do an application form certainly for like a lay, a lay person um but I was it was lovely that it wasn't just <coughs> um, like a token gesture of co-production it was how I, I had an equal voice to every single medical professional around that table and it was a huge hugely impressive table with a lot of knowledge um, and it was just it was lovely to know that a mother's voice was being heard, you know, and and it, and it was real. And I think that's one of the things I struggled with when um, when the, there was a bit of a backlash around um, saying that we were kind of creating a, a nanny state and and talk telling talking about women not wanting to have alcohol consumption on their child's records or controlling what women did. That, that whole conversation that, that that came out in the press about recording consumption of alcohol um, and the impression that people had that it was and I, I read a few comments like this about the fact that it was, you know, this this table of medical professionals.
1: Can she go in another room? That no? Yeah yeah. You can go in any room Sadie. So. To Beach. the beach.
0: Do you want to Maybe try walking about with that because just for the next few minutes we need it to be quiet. You're doing a really good job, Sadie. Yeah.
2: Talking to her. I hope that thud was. It was somebody tapping their microphone and not the baby falling. <laughs> 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 um,
0: yeah, I read a few different things about the fact that people were saying, you know, these, the, there was a lot of comments about the fact that they they would imagine it was a table of um, faceless, um, middle-aged, middle-class professional men making these decisions about women. And it just, I felt so passionate about it because that couldn't have been more of an opposite description of what that panel was. Um predominantly female and females from every different area and speciality midwives and mothers and you you know you there in a professional capacity sandy but also as a mother you know so I just think that it was I feel really really privileged to have been part of it um I'm really really proud of it and I'm proud of what we've produced um and it's just it's it's lovely to know that we've got this like this where the hard work starts now like that was kind of the easier bit the hard journey now is Getting them implemented and um, trying to was trying to guide people what they need to do or, or what it means. But what Sandy, what when they were finally released, what did it mean to you? How did it make you feel?
2: Uh, well, you know that on the day that it finally came out, I think you and I were in touch and we were both crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't there as a professional; I was there as a lay member, like you, and with my mom hat on. And um, It's, you know, what what people need to understand is these quality standards identify areas where the quality of care needs to improve. So, this is the, you know, the powers that be are saying they understand that they're not doing enough right now to either prevent FASD or to support, to recognize and support those people who do have FASD. And that's huge, especially because as it turned out, after The big delays that it had and i guess we should all say we're speaking as individuals and not as representatives of nice we have to be careful about that this is just our personal um, experiences of things afterwards too but there was also a department of health fasd health needs assessment for england that came out just before that and uh, you know that document also identified areas where care needs to be improved and it's just this recognition that through all these documents, and there are others, that FASD is lifelong. You know, little kids with FASD grow up and have needs throughout their life. It recognizes FASD as a spectrum. It's not just about people who have certain facial features. Uh, it says that there's uh, the the needs assessment says there's no mild FASD. You know, to get a diagnosis of FASD, now that we have this nice now that NICE has accepted, there's all these terms, but NICE has accepted SIGN, and SIGN says that to have a diagnosis of FASD, you have to have severe impairment in at least three areas. Raja knows this better than I do. But all of, what all of this equals, as you're saying as a parent, for all those parents that we know are out there, that we talk to all the time, who bang their heads against the wall when they talk to professionals who don't understand the condition, they don't do, the little bit of added research that they need to do to stay current on this because it's not what they were taught when they were in medical school or whatever training they had and and now uh, you know for the first time and this nice the, because of the agreements with Wales as well a nice quality standard is also in effect through Wales so for the first time now in England and Wales at least all the local areas are going to have to show what they're doing, like Roger said, they're gonna have to show what they're doing to improve services for children and young people with FASD. As a mom, that's just huge. And to be honest, the quality standard, when we first walked into the room versus what came out at the end of the process, it went further than I thought it would. And in particular, the fact that it's got this care management plan at the end, and it says that, uh, you know, People who are at risk should be assessed for FASD. That people um, to get the FASD diagnosis, you should have the neurodevelopmental assessment. I mean, it's really it's all in there, and it, it emphasizes training, the importance of training, uh, and and the different local areas are going to have to show how they're training up about FASD. There's quantifiable things that are you know other people know more about it than I do, but. There are actually measures in the quality standard that the, the areas are going to have to show how they're improving and this will be tracked over years. And the wonderful thing is at the end of all this, if suddenly by some miracle three or five years from now, all of these things are done, the way that this process works, the NICE committee will come back a- again and identify more areas to improve care. So we're in there we're, it it's, it's really exciting and it's hard to balance you know, with my other hat on, It's hard to balance the expectations of people that this might help their kids today, right? Because sometimes these things take a few years to get through the system. And if you're a family in crisis and you've been battling for diagnosis, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's not likely that this is all going to slide into place, but what instantly, but what you do have now is you've got, you're armed. You can go in with these official documents and you can say, I'm sorry, it's not good enough. You can't tell me that a diagnosis won't help because I've got all the leading public health bodies behind me right now, saying you need to do something. So let's sit at a table, let's get together, new integrated care systems, whatever it's going to be. Now is the time you have to do something. And in fact, we did uh, this document called "The Time Is Now" for ramping up FASD services. It, it's just a moment that I, that's a generational moment. It's not going to come again. And for my son, you know, he's transitioning into adulthood soon. Um, I'm not going to be around forever. And just on a really heartfelt level as a mom to know that at least my son has a chance when I'm not around of fighting for services. And at least there's a chance more services will be in place for him when he needs it. That's, you can't describe that. Claire, I know you know what it's like. You can't describe it and so yeah i'm going to put all my energy into making sure these things get operationalized making sure that there's change coming um and i'm not naive i know they're not perfect you know none of us in that room were naive but is it hopeful heck yeah am i pleased that i was able to be a little part of it it was an honor but um you know we're standing on the shoulders of People who have been arguing, and Raj is one of them. People who have been fighting this battle for decades to get to this point, uh, but it it is a moment, and it is worth celebrating, even if it's confusing to people out there to try to understand what it means.
0: I think the thing that struck out to me about as we were going through the process, I totally agree with what you say, Sandy. When I went in, I thought, well, this we're going to put it, we're going to be able to put it like a little stake in the ground, and there's going to be no going backwards from that point, but I don't know how far we're going to get. But whatever it is, the eternal optimist, it's going to be better than we had. I couldn't have imagined that we were going to cover what was covered. I was shocked by that. And it it wasn't perfect, and there's a lot of people, you know, not happy about, you know, or could have wanted more in there. But I think what spoke volumes to me was the fact that nice... Um, and I know this is kind of public information that the, the consultation on this, so when, the, when they put things out to consultation, so anyone who has a, an interest in this can can give feedback. So it's like a public consultation. And the, they've never had a response like it to any nice quality standard consultation that they've put out there
3: in, in the history. So can I, the thing, the, the consultation... The consultation excited me and disappointed me at the same time because there was we obviously got the replies back and we were looking at that and we had to constant comment on that and you know i think we were portrayed as on our side of it as being anti-women and all this kind of thing stopping choice and that's never been the case and actually, I had a conversation with one of the lay members who I knew nothing about who's a permanent lay member of the panel. So the nice panel has permanent members, and they have invited members. So we were all invited members to be part of it. Then the, one of the lay permanent members, I was having a conversation afterwards because she wanted to know more. And she said, "Well, actually, you're more feminist than than some of the other because you're actually pro-choice. You're about giving women choice, giving them understanding, and then letting them choose what they want to do based on the best evidence as is there. and and actually, That's what we always wanted to do. We want to give people information. We want to let them know what the science is now, and then not dictate what you have to do. But this is what the best practice would be for a healthy overall pregnancy. And that's what we've always been about, but somehow it gets skewed and made into something which it's not. And there were so many of the responses that kind of fed into this narrative that we were trying to stop women having choice, which was never the case. and what I was really proud of, nice for doing, is that they took the legal advice, they took the th- the hit listen things onto on board as to what was allowed and what's not, and they stuck to the guns that this was important, and they produced something that actually will make a real difference because they could have easily um, cowed to some of the comments and actually took in some of the important things out, because actually the second quality standards which say you have to document and ask women about their alcohol is crucial. The two people I've been discussing today in clinical supervision with people, the lack of information is the bit that's stopping us making the diagnosis. Simple as that. I can say I suspect it, but without that confirmed history, where we are in the science right now means that information is crucial to the diagnosis. Now, maybe in the future, we can do things like epigenetic markers and other things, which will tell us without having that history, whether or not it's been exposure. But right now, the science ain't there. And so we do have to rely on the information that we gather. And asking women is the only way you can do it, you know, and giving them advice at the same time is an intervention for that. And you know, Sandy's group, you know, so no fact U National FASD did that study, showed that ninety percent of women, if you ask in the right way, are willing to to have that documented. They think because they're there for that. And so it, it is about relationship, it is about choice and is about giving information properly. And that's what we've always been about. And so I was really pleased that they, despite that response, despite not all of it being positive and actually trying to portray it in a certain way, that they stuck to their guns and did something which is really going to be positive for people who have FASD.
2: Could I just add in there though, that just because, well, I want to say something and then I want to talk about something else too, because just because nice this this quality standard is silent on something, doesn't mean that that's the end of the story, yeah. right? So let's just leave that there. So Raj just says, if for sure, if a pregnant woman is asked if it's okay to record this in the child's records, there is no question. there's nobody out there who says that that's not allowed. And then there are other things that can happen. But I don't I're hearing, I just heard yesterday from somebody who's been working with CCGs who said that um, you know, in the meetings that they're having, everybody's focusing on the first two of the statements in this quality standard, which are the ones that are about informing uh, pregnant women about the risks and um, ensuring that, that those pregnancies that have been alcohol exposed are noted in some way, and that this conversation goes on throughout the pregnancy. Hugely important, no question about it. But what's different here, that stuff, most of it has already been discussed. The chief medical officer's guideline changed in 2016, right? That's, that's the, the new news here are those other three things. And we're hearing that in some of the meetings with the CCGs, they're still only focusing on those first two, maybe because it's more of familiar ground. But again, as a mom to somebody with FASD and and someone who helps tries to help support other families who and, and people, adults with FASD, the, the huge difference here is that it's also got a lot to say about diagnosis. And the need for multidisciplinary teams of people who are able to help assess this. It's got uh, you know a lot to say about how the different um, you know, when it comes time to a care management plan that's going to that should include schools and other, you know it's 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 exciting. and these things, some of it's new ground. I mean, I don't there's work that's been done up in Scotland, you know, on what a care management plan might look like and things like that. But it's really, this is groundbreaking stuff. This is huge. And so I um, I just caution everybody, whenever we have these discussions, I came from a different field of international peace and security and bombs and guns and things. And there's a saying there that, that you, you know, generals always fight the last battles. And the thing that's super about this NICE quality standard now is we don't have to fight that battle anymore. It's it's here, you know, it's the, the the NICE has looked at the expert opinion from here and around the world, people with degrees dripping off their walls like Rajen, you know, but they, they all the people who have looked at this, this is evidence-based. This is, there is, as you said, there's no going back from here. FASD is recognized. If anybody out there is an FASD denier and is gonna start saying it's only about facial features, which affect less than 10% of people with FASD, you know, they can just, that that's old school. They are out of touch. They don't get it. They are unfortunately sometimes making a lot of noise, but we don't have to fight that anymore. Now we just point to NICE and to the Department of Health and the BMA has been trying to say this for a long time with help from people like Raja. But I think the other thing that's really good about this is that it gives the professionals like Raja and those others that we know, the real superheroes in their own fields who have been trying to get other professionals, other doctors and to the Royal College, all these people to look at this. Now they have the the. ammunition they need too if I continue a horrible analogy about my prior you know now they're ready to go out there and and they're armed as well and it's just a whole new world it's exciting
1: can I ask somebody probably Raja and you um what are those three last statements put you on the spot now so um, sadly first and second
3: well, I don't have them in in front of me. By the way, Jess, you need to add these plastered things to the wall. So, and so then you'll you'll have the same thing soon. Uh, but if 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 Sandy's um um if Sandy's got them written down, then she might as well read them out. I I would be going off memory.
2: Yeah, I've got them right here. So, um, you know, as the first one is about advice that pregnant women are given advice throughout pregnancy not to drink alcohol because there's no known safe level of alcohol during pregnancy. The second one is about fetal alcohol exposure and pregnant women are asked about their alcohol use throughout their pregnancy, and this is recorded. The third is about referral for assessment. So it says children and young people with probable prenatal alcohol exposure and significant physical, developmental, or behavioral difficulties are referred for assessment by someone with FASD training and then the health services have to prove that there is this training. The fourth one is about a neurodevelopmental assessment. So children and young people with confirmed prenatal alcohol exposure or all three facial features associated with prenatal alcohol exposure have a neurodevelopmental assessment if there are clinical concerns. And then the final one is that children and young people with FASG will have a care management plan to help address their needs. And those are the headlines of them. And if you go and read it, there's much more information under each of those headings. And, and, and as I said, it's got in there the really important thing. And I think the thing that took the, the broader committee quite a bit of time was it all has these measurable ways that the CCGs and in the future, the integrated care systems are going to have to show what they're doing to improve care. I think my- so the last three, the first two are prevention. Then it's all about identifying and how to support people with FASD. The weakness is, of course, this is all about children and young people, because that's what the sign guideline was about. And NICE couldn't do something without a guideline. Okay. But it does. If the care management plan is done properly, it should note into adulthood. Um, and then in the sign guideline, it also says that the diagnostic criteria is similar for adults. I mean, that was, so it's it's not, uh, there still needs to be much more done to support adults. And as I said, my son's 17, turning 18 soon, and it it's a scary way forward. But even still, even with all that, I think that this these documents will make sure that he has a brighter future because... Nowhere in the country is going to be able to get away with ignoring FASD any longer. And they all have. I mean, we did a report in National FASD where we'd done freedom of information requests to the clinical commissioning groups to find out if they had a policy about FASD, and they didn't. I mean, it was just stark. It was a wasteland out there. And now, now they're going to have to take note. And the thing is, is that it's not going to cost them a lot of money necessarily because, and Roger's really good on this, if they get their act together about this, not only just through prevention, but also by getting that early diagnosis and support in, they're going to get the right kind of support because our kids are in the system. I mean, Claire, I I can't even imagine what paperwork you have. I've got massive file cabinet. I am
0: paralyzed by, genuinely paralyzed by the paperwork in my home. It is it like it's it's given me mental health problems it is everywhere honestly it is yeah i know i can
3: imagine so part of what nice have to do is and this is important is they they can't recommend things that are going to cripple the nhs they just can't um and so they have to do things which are cost effective and i I distinctly remember one of the times where we we got questioned and quizzed you'll remember this about saying well how much is this going to cost us what is this going to do and there's somebody on that panel who who is there go-to gurus commissioner who they they said and we had to kind of persuade them actually what we were suggesting and what we were saying is was interventional ways wasn't going to break the NHS in terms of cost and they said oh that sounds reasonable because actually what we're proposing isn't rocket science it's about adapting and using current approaches they're already in the system a lot of these people Um, and so it's about saying well how do we recognize them how do we best manage that um and and, th- and that was something that we we need to to um, to, to consider when we when we're doing that because it's really important that actually um, that what we can demonstrate to people is that this is a cost effective way of doing it and the other thing that will happen is if you start to implement these level one, two, three, four five, it'll flow down because one of the problems as we said already is we can't identify or or recognise people because we don't have the alcohol exposure. Well, actually point four says if you've got a confirmed alcohol exposure, then you get referred. Well, if you actually do point two properly, then you actually point four will get implemented as well. And so it kind of flows down the whole route of it in terms of some of those uh, parts. So it's a really important factor that actually not only is this going to be a cycle of improvement overall, that once you do one part of it, it'll improve the rest of it. But actually, it doesn't have to cost a huge amount to do it. And if you use what we call the cost to save model, so you invest a little bit to save a lot more, it makes huge sense. And this is going to do that.
0: Because like we said, these 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 children and young people are in this system anyway. They are using the services. and And a lot of these children are the children who are trapped in inappropriate and unsuitable pathways that they don't belong in clogging up waiting lists that, that, that they are not that you know they're not they're not in the right places and i think i did after i remember when we were talking about this at the panel and and thinking well to me this is this is a money saving exercise apart from the quality of life and the saving of lives it is a money saving exercise because i did a very very rough calculation of just one of my children um comparing if 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 i had known what was going on with them and if they had got a diagnosis even just even just at the beginning of primary at the beginning of key stage one just on ehcp funding and that was just the bits of it that i knew of there was other parts of it that i didn't know what the costs were it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands for one child and that was just an education element and they wouldn't they would not have needed that they would not have needed it because those were all put into place because things were falling apart and it was crisis and more trauma was caused so it's I I just think it is I I don't think anyone can begin to imagine how this
2: can have a knock-on effect on all of society I say I was trying to describe it to somebody around the time when it came out and we know because of research that Raj has been involved in um, up in Salford that more people are likely to have FASD than autism right that's just just, uh, research that's been done here and in other countries Um, and most people are kind of shocked when they hear that and then I said so imagine if nothing existed in the country for autism in fact in most places if you went to somebody and said I think my child might be autistic and I uh, need to get diagnosis and support. And they said, oh no, just, you know, it's your parenting, go away. Don't worry about it. Um, don't look, they'll grow don't, out of it.
0: Don't look like they're autistic. That, they haven't got
2: the right face. Right. And then, and then you woke up the next day and suddenly the highest, you know, the, the most prestigious place in the country says, hey, wait, autism exists. And here are the things that local areas need to do to identify and support people with autism. It's like going from zero to 100 in 15 seconds. You know, it's, it's, it's because this country is really going from a, a standing start to try to catch up with how to support people with FASD and even though I said I don't really want to talk about the first two too much because they're out there but and they are important but there was just a, a minister recently wrote in a um in a parliamentary question they, they were asked what had been done in the last five years to um to add, I forget the exact phrasing but it was something like you know what kind of money's been spent to advertise about FASD in, in the last five years and they hadn't done they said there was no money spent on it. So even after the chief medical officer's guidance came out, they're still saying that they hadn't been doing things. And and so we really are starting from scratch. So it's, it's a moment and it's a moment the entire community and most especially all those warriors like Raja and others who, I mean, I came into this field out of necessity when we hit a really hard time with my son. Um, but there are people who have been working on this for decades, and it's this is a moment everyone should feel pleased about. And of course, the work has to follow. And, you know, it's not going to happen by accident that everything is put in in the way that we'd like it to be. And I don't even know that we know what it needs to look like, although we did just do all these roundtable discussions leading up to the time is now to try to help identify that it's, there's a Norwegian saying that I love. And the saying is the road's made by walking it. Yeah. And I think we're all walking this journey right now. And for sure, it's a nicer walk than it was a couple of years ago when none of this stuff existed um, and hopefully leading to someplace better than we've been. I'm sure it is. I have no doubt about that. It
0: definitely is. It definitely is. And I think that's why we wanted, we just wanted to have a little bit of both of your time to, to celebrate it and just to acknowledge that this is something um, really positive and really, really exciting. A lot of hard slog ahead of us, but with, you know, for want of a better word, with a lot more armor now. Um, and it's horrible because we do have all these fighting analogies. <laughs> and I, I don't like it, but there's quite often no other way to describe it because it's,
2: it's just the truth of it. So I Can think... I just say- when, when I sat in Raj's office with my husband uh, and we were hearing our son's diagnosis seven, seven and a half years ago, and Raj said at the time that this is lifelong and there's currently no post-diagnostic support for people with FASD in this country, I can't tell you how, I mean, I guess I don't have to tell you, Claire, but for other people listening, you know, that was... Devastating. I mean, we finally had the answer to what it was that was making it so challenging to try to support our son in a way. And we finally got the diagnosis and then there was nothing. Right. And the fact that now, all these years later, not so many years, really. Now. There's more out there. Now there's more hope. Now there's more that can be said to families who get that diagnosis. I think that's life changing. And even if it changes one life, you know, then it's all worth it. But this is we know this is going to have, what is it, two to four percent of the population are likely to have FASD. This can have profound impact on some of the most vulnerable people in society and let people like raja and his colleagues you know the the people out there who are trying to get the funding and the services in place uh you know it gives them more to work with and so hope it's all about hope from my my perspective
0: i i want to say a a big thank you because you you've just really touched something with me there sandy because you and i are in this world we landed in this world through necessity we 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 had to learn to navigate this world, and some of my favorite kind of people in in my life are the people who ch- like the Rajas and the Jessicas, soon to be doctor. Are the, they are the people who who fill me with such hope because they are the people who choose to be in this world, and that that gives me like such such strength. To know that those people are at my shoulder, literally, literally at my shoulder. It never sits comfortable with me
3: when people talk. But you know, we don't do this because it's we're doing it for whatever. It's it's because it's the right thing to do, and it has to be because it's the right thing to do. Because people are there. You go into medicine, you go into whatever because you want to help people, and if you see there's a need, you you try and help people, and that's all it is. You know, I don't see myself. I know people big me up, but I don't see myself doing anything more than just needs to be done. And I'm in tra- I wanted to go in to do research. I wanted to find a field that was interesting. It kind of came along at the right time. maybe it was meant to be. But you know, we just do our bit. and I'm sure Jess is the same. I've known Jess for a decade. Um but you know, we all do our bit of that puzzle. and I look at you guys and think, actually, I don't have to live with it. I go in there and you could argue to a certain degree, it's an academic experience, it's not. but um, You live with it. You are the people who we are trying to help. And you're the people who who we should be really proud of because you are making a difference to the other stuff we couldn't do without you. And so, you know, if you're not there to push it forward, Sandy, for example, you know, so much has changed because of your drive and your passion and the fact that you're still working at three three o'clock in the morning sometimes or whenever it is or silly hours doing things at weekends when you should be having your feet up, um, you know, it wouldn't have happened without you. And so it's really important. The driver, the thing that I think changed DOH's Department of Health's view on some of this was the was the panel of individuals with FASD and the families, not the professionals. You know, our voices are whatever, you know, we can shout the wind for as long as we want and we have a place to do it. But without you telling your stories, forget it, we just waste our time. So it's really important that you guys are there too.
2: I was just in a room yesterday in London with um, some of the, it was a couple of ministers, MPs, most of the leads on these issues across all the different departments, um, <clears throat> and it was also it was about alcohol more more broadly too. But um, in that meeting, at the end, I was supposed to be talking. We were talking about a project that National FaSD and Seashell did together called me my F S D, you know, where we created a bunch of resources and training to support children and young people. At the end of that, we played a song that we created with words that were sent to us by young people with FASD. It's performed by people with FASD. And, um, and I had people come up to me at the end of that who were clearly, visibly moved because they could hear and see the young people with FASD that are too often talked about in an abstract way. And with every fiber of my being, you know, I believe it's important that we give young people and adults with FASD the space to tell their stories and to speak their truth. Because I realized now, I realized it after the diagnosis, you know, but it took me too long to see that my son was always telling, he was speaking his truth and he was telling me How to help him, but I was always talking over him. And I think that that's kind of what's happening now is that the 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 I mean, think of all the people hours that have happened in all of these really busy policy. um, I want to say like factories, if you think of it that way. You know, these people. This is uh, this came out during COVID. You know, they the, the number of hours that all these people of goodwill have put into this. And yeah, I think you're right, Raja. I think it's because they were put in rooms full with with people with FASD who bravely spoke their truth and their families and carers who supported for them. And it's also because this community of people is a really powerful, amazing community of people. And when I say community, I mean everybody, professional and families alike, I, I I you know, it's not always easy to get busy people, harried people, people, you know, where, you know, kids may be climbing the walls or something, you know, like it's, it's, a, it's a busy lifestyle and a, and a rough community sometimes to get attention from, but everybody comes to the table when you ask and and that includes you know raja with those what do we did nine round tables from december to march and the country's leading professionals on this were there you know people come if you build it they'll come and um i mean i guess we we shouldn't all be patting ourselves on the back but i agree with you claire that it's it's some of us are here because out of our love and determination and stubbornness you know there's no other place for us to be but all the professionals who come in and bring their experience and their wider connections, because that's what we need. We need to get out of the FASD echo chamber somehow. And I think we're starting too slowly. Uh, and certainly this gets people's attention. And our trick is just making sure that as the funding follows this now, that there's other groups that weren't really honed in on this before that as they come in that they get proper training not just a tick box kind of exercise and that they do things carefully and cleverly and that all those other organizations and and entities keep the people with lived experience at the core of all the changes that are coming because if they start to develop pathways and things without meaningful co-creation with the people whose lives are most affected by this then we might be in for a scary time. So far, I think we've had some good signs, and I just hope that that, that continues.
1: I think okay, me, um, I, I obviously wasn't involved, um, but, and I work very much in the education side, focusing on um, children and young people with FASD who are disengaged from education. And you know, I just want to, to thank the three of you and everybody else involved in the Nice Quality Standards. Because having those has made my job one hell of a lot easier, in that every... every, You throw them all (laughs) over. Well, actually... (laughs) Probably once a week I get, um, you know, I'm on a meeting and I say, oh, has anybody considered FASD? Has anybody looked at at FASD as a possibility? Because, you know, this this child's being moved around, care placements, you know, really, really, like, has anybody considered FASD? And the social worker will turn around and say... What's that? And I just just drop that link in, it's there, it's ready, it's in my browser every time. I just drop that link in and leave it with them. And as soul-destroying as it is to continually have that conversation with the people who are supporting the individuals, where I think like, oh my goodness, please, somebody take that child to Raja very quickly. Um. And the person, you know, in in that that role being so unaware. I then have five more conversations with different people who are working in residential care or education or, you know, anywhere who are like, oh, okay, right. I've heard about this. Can you tell me more? And all of a sudden, we're sucking them in. Like, they're, they're getting absorbed. And it's exactly how I did when I started my PhD however many years ago. I was sent off to find and I was told you have to specialise in a condition, you cannot do your PhD on all of the conditions that are impacted within special education, that's fine. So I went away, I stumbled across FASD and was like this is it, this fascinates me, this is what I'm getting into and my supervisors were (laughs) both very much like oh, we're trying to address a gap in knowledge and you've come back with the crater like okay you've not really got much to work with here you've really set yourself a challenge this is going to take a long time and it has taken a long time for various reasons um but along the way one of the most important things and I had a turning point four years ago now where I got involved in the summer camp we've spoken to Nick and Sharon on, on this podcast before and I met individuals with FASD I started working with them and I got involved with um you know all of these different activities and I met the parents and the carers and at that point I was like okay this right here the experience of connecting with these parents changes absolutely everything and you can see there's such a shift like in my research and my work as well um and it's
2: sucked
1: in as glad as that, you know, that you just- you're I just
2: have the mental, I have a mental image of you from the brain base that you came to and were part of, of you helping um, teach a bunch of young people with FASD yoga. I mean, you're very hands-on, aren't you? And, it, it's, and it's just lovely when you, as a parent, see someone who comes into the orbit of your loved ones who is open to these things. I've always said I'll forgive any professional the first time they haven't heard about FASD. If they when they encounter my son, I will not forgive them the second time if they haven't then gone and done what they need to do because they wouldn't they would not ignore any other condition. You know, they couldn't. And FASD is no different. And that's what the nice quality standard now in the Department of Health Needs assessment and other documents that have come out give us the backup to say. Cause they really, it's, I mean, it's their job. I mean, I know that they're busy and I know it's been a hard time, but, and that includes people in schools too and in, in criminal justice and in social workers and doctors, you know, all across the spectrum. It, okay, if you haven't heard about it, fair enough. We know the training that's been in everybody's education hasn't been complete. And it may take a while for that to change But once you're staring at somebody who has this condition and or you think the parents are saying they think it might be, uh, then there's just no excuse. There's no excuse. And it's not all about, you know, it's not all about I hate the term and I never use it. You know, people say mom admitted to drinking. It's not about admitting to anything. It's just sharing the, the fact that there's a lot of pregnancies that are unplanned, that. Uh, You know, a lot of women have had confusing messages from all over the place about it. Anyway, it's just about making sure that the the fact, the medical fact, um, that it was an alcohol exposed pregnancy is available because then down the line, that's the information that's needed to, um, you know, to to be the key to create that, that brighter future for people. But unless we all are open to the idea that maybe our education wasn't complete enough maybe you're a head teacher and you're you've got a kid who has been a disciplinary problem and maybe it's easier to exclude rather than to dig deeper or try to get that ehcp or whatever it is you know but i don't i don't forgive the lack of curiosity about how to help somebody. Because what I was starting to say, so I know a birth mother who went to the the doctor and said, you know, maybe do you think, you know, I was drinking during pregnancy and I know that that can cause problems. I think that might be something we should look at. And her doctor turned to her and said, you're just trying to uh, make an excuse for parenting issues and, and wouldn't push forward towards diagnosis. So this isn't just all about, whether or not, you know, women feel in a comfortable environment, uh, you know, to come forward. It's also about how the, I I had another, um, I was at a Royal College of GP conference one time with a stand and a GP came up to me and he said, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. National Organization for FASD. Um, and I said, well, it's because GPs need to know about this too. And he said, oh, well, I've been a GP for 40 years and I've never had a pregnant woman drinking alcohol in pregnancy in my career. And I am ashamed, but not really to say that I actually laughed. I was like, that's impossible. But with that kind of attitude, I'm not surprised a woman didn't say anything about concerns about alcohol in pregnancy. So anyway, it's just, it's its all, it's recognition, isn't it, Claire? Yeah. It's just recognizing that our kids exist. Mm-hmm
0: and and I think it's it's like a little bit of scaffolding for for us to start and move forward um and you know like we said at the beginning we just wanted to to get you on to to talk about it a little bit more because it it came it just came from nowhere it came so fast it was delayed and delayed and then it was here and then we had um we're having all the round tables then we all got together in London and it's just snowballed so fast that we wanted to just take a beat and uh, to acknowledge it and be like you know let's Let's just celebrate this because it's huge and then just let's just keep going um and what we'll um we'll put we'll add the link to the um the report sandy that you that national fasd made um yeah so the time is now report yeah and yeah we'll,
1: song that sandy yeah we'll
0: we'll add we'll we'll put all those links in yeah. when we're when we we'll put this out um so thank just thank you thank you so much for your time um at the end of a very busy week Thanks for talking to us. I know um, we don't take much encouragement. We we'll all get very excited about it all. <laughs> well, we do. And then Roger's just, just like, here they go again. <laughs> no, not at all. I enjoy
2: it. It's good. So thank you. Um, thank you. And thanks for all that you do, and the, and the, the. Um, you know, just the the way that you do what you do. This is to both you, Jessica and Claire. I think it's so important that. We tackle really difficult issues, but we do it and we stay positive and we bring people together. And, you know, that work happens in all different kinds of ways. And the work that you're doing, not just through Spotlight on FASD, but also in the other work that I know both of you do is so hugely important. Uh, so thank you. And, you know, National FASD is here if you need us for anything.
3: And I look forward to listening to you my car when I go to work, go into work next time. Thank you.